0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Good morning, this is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia. Today on the show, in Vanuatu, and political enemies have become allies once again after a tra- traditional reconciliation between former and current Prime Ministers. My
2: first task that was set by Congress was to approach uh, him and other leaders to see whether it was possible that they could return to uh, the Union of Moderate Parties.
1: And we hear from Greenpeace's senior nuclear specialist on what he thinks are alternatives to Japan's plan to dump treated nuclear wastewater into the Pacific. And rates of family violence in Papua New Guinea are some of the highest in the world. And researchers going through the data are noticing some other worrying trends.
3: Women with higher education have experienced more possible violence than women without education.
1: All that and more Today on the show, I'm Priyanka Srinivasan, so glad to have your company. First though, uh, Prime Ministers, Presidents and Foreign Ministers are converging on the Fiji town of Nandi for a special Pacific Islands Forum Leaders Meeting. While proceedings are yet to begin, Australia's Foreign Minister Penny Wong has already announced assistance to host country Fiji.
4: And I did want to take the opportunity to have the first uh, announcement in, in relation to that strengthening and renewal, which is an additional $10 million from Australia to help rebuild schools in Fiji's northern division that were devastated by the tropical cyclones in 2020 and 2021. Uh, uh, This is uh, additional funding on top of an existing program which will enable us to rebuild all nine schools, I think, that were destroyed or damaged. But most importantly, not just rebuild them, but rebuild, rebuild them to a higher standard.
1: That announcement by Penny Wong was made at a joint press conference with Prime Minister Sitiveni Rambuka last night. Joining us now for more about the Pacific Islands Forum Leaders Meeting is ABC's reporter in Fiji, Lude Muvono. Good, no- good morning to you, Lude.
5: Vala Vina, Priyanka, that's how they say hello here in Nandi uh, on Danarau Island, where all of the leaders of the Pacific are gathering for the Pacific Islands Forum's special leaders retreat, Priyanka.
1: Yes, and you are there, Luthe, uh, as you mentioned. Um, and before we dig into that um, special retreat, we just heard from foreign minister from Australia, Penny Wong, announcing help for cyclones. cyclone-hit Fiji schools, saying they'll be built, built back even stronger, But it was that the only announcement? There was something else there, wasn't it?
5: That's right, Priyanka. She also um, talked about the the Partnerships for Health or Partnerships for a Healthy Region initiative, a six hundred and twenty million dollar project that's meant to fund over five years a range of health activities in the Pacific. Um, they are a response, she mentions um, in a statement sent overnight, uh, their response to the COVID nineteen crisis and to the lessons that have been learned from the kind of burdens that health systems across the Pacific faced while trying to address the pandemic. So it's things like um, communicable disease prevention and control, uh, NCD, sexual and reproductive health rights, and the list goes on, Priyanka.
1: Yes, interesting. There are some, I guess, two long-term, uh, developments there, uh, for Fiji, uh, with the cycle-improved schools and also this health funding. Um, but let's go to the matter of, at hand, this, uh, leaders conference that's happening. You're in Nandi, where, where that Pacific Island Forum leaders meeting, that retreat is happening. W- what is it like there? Any hints of this, of this big meeting, uh, that's set to be underway?
5: Yes, Priyanka, as it is, the air on Danarao is quite different. There's a, um, a an almost a, a jovial kind of a mood. Everyone is, it's a little bit noisier than usual. Um, you know, you expect Pacific Island Forum leaders, or at least over the last several years, they tend to have been, you know, a bit more of a sober event and people uh, are quite serious. But um, I guess that was tantamount to um, the, the effects of the fractions within the family or within the Pacific Boulevard. Valley as they call it here in the region but last night what we witnessed um, at the Secretary General Henry Puna's reception was a very informal atmosphere a lot of hugging um, beginning with that between SG Henry Puna and of course President Mamao from the Republic mm. of Kiribati who of course um, you know, had been away from the Pacific Fu Valley over the last year and so already uh, there is um, some happiness that we can Witness, Branca.
1: Yes, can you tell us about that significance of this meeting the day? I mean, you mentioned the the return, uh, the the joyous return, it seems, of um, Kiribati President Tanese Maumau. But what what broader what broadly is the significance of this um, special meeting? Why is it happening? What do we know about it, Brianka, This entire meeting,
5: the the leaders. Uh, special retreat, it's called, is focused on um, the Suva Agreement. Now, the Suva Agreement is a meeting brokered uh, between the Pacific Islands Forum and the members of the Micronesian President's Summit, which is, of course, you know, the heads of the Micronesian states of the Pacific, um, who a year prior had threatened to leave the Pacific Islands Forum uh, over the selection of the current head of the forum Secretariat, Mr. Henry Puno the former Prime Minister of the Cook Islands, um, given uh, previous tradition, uh the the, the post of SG to the Pacific Islands Forum Secretariat is usually rotated amongst the three Pacific blocs, Melanesia, Polynesia, and Micronesia. And so the belief had been that uh, two years ago, the new SG needed to be from the Micronesian states. And the MPS, the Micronesian Presidential Summit, had a candidate in mind. However, um, it was put to a vote like it normally does, and the majority voted in favor of Secretary General Henry Puna. And so it, culmin- it was a culmination of years of the Mac- the Micronesian states feeling left out and disrespected is a word um, that's been thrown about a lot. Um, however, the previous Fijian Prime Minister, Frank Bainimarama invited the members of the MPS to Suva last year and tried to broker a deal to keep the Pacific family together, hence the name, the Suva Agreement. Now, that agreement um, necessitates um, some giving and some taking. So, officers of the PIFs that are meant to be established in Micronesian states, and a list of other goodies that had been offered uh, by the former Prime Minister Frank Bain However, at the Pacific Islands Forum leaders' meeting in July of last year, the leaders could not come to an agreement over how the Suva agreement would be operationalized. But They did agree, however, to meet in Denarau this weekend to look at exactly what goes where, what gets set up in which state of the Pacific? And the most important question of all, Priyanka, is who pays for it? So <laughs> um, that is the most significant part of the agenda uh, in this weekend's and this week's proceedings.
1: Oh, very interesting. So I guess the the logistical step, often the most overlooked but most important step uh, to the Suva agreement is happening there in Denarau. Um, and I understand that today it's the Micronesian leaders meeting, who, who you just explained were sort of the key parts of this bringing together the Pacific Islands uh, family again. What can we expect from this meeting happening between Micronesian leaders?
5: It will be the first time as well for the members of the Micronesian Presidential Summit to meet together. And the idea is that they meet with the current chair, who, of course, is the new Fijian Prime Minister, Sitiveni Rambuka, who, in his first overseas state visit, visited President Mamao and engineered this now return to the Pacific Vuvale. So, what we understand is that uh, while all of the leaders are invited to the Ratumara and Sir Michael Somare Cup, a golf tournament that has run almost as long as the Pacific Islands Forum Leaders' Meeting has, um, the members of the MPS will sit down to a Talanoa. It's very informal, um, as is the most of the proceedings of this weekend. The agenda itself is very wide and open, and so there's a lot of um, uh, recreational activities. So Talanoa over cover with Prime Minister Rambuka to look at um, the longstanding standing Issues that the Micronesian states have had that led to their withdrawal, or at least the threatening of their withdrawal, in the case of the other members of the MPS. Um, and the idea is that the Vuvale addresses that this weekend before the handover of the chair of the forum to the Polynesians, which in this case will become will be the Cook Islands Prime Minister.
1: Mm, interesting. Um, and do we know um, are those decisions around? Um, who'll become the next secretary general, the next sub-regional office? That those are also happening during this time? Or is that, is it just sort of, uh, informalities, as you said, during these meetings? This
5: meeting is specifically about the Suva Agreement. We know that the selection of the Secretary General will not take place for some time. Um, As as part of the Suva Agreement itself, Secretary General Puna completes his term, and the term is lengthened to 2025. And so this meeting is purely about how they're going to um, implement the Suva Agreement, who pays for it, and to look at the, the details of what moves where. What um, was was engineered in the Suva agreement is is quite impactful and some of it very specific. Uh, for example, um, the 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 office of the oceans, uh, the Pacific Oceans Commissioner, now has to move to a Micronesian state as well. They want a sub regional office and also a trade office. So that that in itself is quite a large um, uh, chunk for them to chew through this week, Priyanka.
1: Yes, yes. Not not all golfing tournaments and carver sipping uh, for the week. Um, Now, I wanted to turn to the media side of things, Lide. You've covered multiple forum leaders meeting. Do you know if this will operate any differently when it comes to how uh, the Pacific leaders interact with the press? What's access to the leaders looking like?
5: Priyanka, that was the first um, the first t- thing that I noticed upon coming to this meeting, traveling in from Suva, is I'm not even wearing an accreditation badge. And that in itself was an indication of the more relaxed uh, security around these meetings. Uh, but I'm told by veterans who cover these meetings that that is usually the Pacific way. And so there's a lot of access. At the formal uh, welcome dinner last night, uh, we were all given full and complete access to the leaders. And so, it, for example, uh, you know, we could run into and, and have a talanoa with um, the president of the Federated States of Micronesia, which you know I took advantage of last night as well. Mm-hmm. And so, there's a lot of access. The press are invited everywhere, and and as it is, we're about to accompany uh, Foreign Minister uh, Penny Wong to um, the new humanitarian stockpile at the BlackRock military camp. So there's a lot of access, uh, Priyanka, and I have to say it um, it's a lot easier to be able to. Talk talk to our leaders about the issues, um, you know, that are facing the Pacific region at this particular PIFS meeting.
1: Yes, yes. Very interesting. I guess all the Pacific leaders there in one section. It's it's a bit of a goldmine for, for journalists and looking forward to what you'll cover. Um, what can you expect to come out of the meeting? Do we have any hints about any outcomes yet, Liday?
5: We do know that um, tomorrow afternoon, the, the, the outgoing chair, Prime Minister Rambuka, is meant to make an announcement around the details that they knock through for the next two days. Uh, we don't expect any major um, uh, uh, news to be announced or any major drama to unfold, since a lot of the work has already been done prior to this particular meeting. Uh, We understand, however, that some of the other issues facing the region, such as um, the implementation of the 2050 strategy and also the outcomes of the visit to uh, Fukushima in Japan, um, are meant to be talked about as well and should be part of that final communique, Priyanka.
1: Yes, well, very interesting, Lide. Um, if any listeners want to keep, um, updated with what's going on there in Denarau, um, how, how can they do that? Uh, you'll be updating your Twitter, is it? Priyanka, I am on
5: Twitter on at Live Movono, but all of the details coming out of here should be going on the ABC Pacific digital platforms. I understand that the larger ABC family is also um, covering um, the meeting. However, at ABC Pacific on Twitter and at ABC Pacific on Facebook is where I hope all of the news goes out first. But if there are any major drama or major announcements, uh, people can follow me on at Live Movono.
1: Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Live, for that update. That was ABC's reporter in Fiji, Elideh Mavono, bringing us the latest about that special Pacific Islands Forum Leaders Retreat. And as we just heard, let's head to a story now expected to be on the agenda for those talks between Pacific leaders in Fiji. Japan is preparing to release 1.3 million tons of treated wastewater. That's around 500 Olympic-sized pools from its Fukushima nuclear plant into the Pacific Ocean, which it says is safe. But those on the front lines, that's residents, fishes and Pacific Islands, fear for their future. And environmentalists and scientists don't think it stacks up. Speaking to ABC's Patricia Carvelis, Sean Burney, Senior Nuclear Specialist at Greenpeace East Asia, started by explaining Japan's plans.
6: So this is water that's currently stored in over a thousand steel tanks on the Fukushima Daiichi site uh, north of Tokyo. Uh, and over the last year, they've constructed uh, a sub seabed pipeline, which will take the water when it's mixed and diluted with seawater. And then they will pump this water out. It's about a kilometre off the, the coast of Fukushima. And this plan is supposed to take 30 years uh, with a certain amount being allowed to be discharged on every year. Uh, the problem is uh, none of this stacks up. Uh, the science doesn't stack up the actual plans don't uh, have not been analyzed properly by the japanese government and the discharges themselves are almost certainly going to go on through the rest of the century and beyond
4: you don't think the plan stacks up at all and you know you're not you're not the only one why is it so dangerous in your view what what's the evidence that mm. it's a dangerous plan
6: well this originally this problem is created by the meltdown in 2011 as you mentioned and ever since then Greenpeace, together with other scientists, civil society in Japan, have been challenging the Japanese government over their management of the site, including the contaminated water. They have not got this situation under control. And so only in the last 12 months, the amount of radioactive water that's built up on the site has gone up by 40,000 tons. They haven't successfully processed the majority of that water, about 80% of that contaminated water in the tanks, still has to be processed to try and remove some of the dangerous radioactive materials like strontium and plutonium. They haven't succeeded in doing that. And yet they've said, we've done an assessment and this is safe to proceed, when in fact they don't actually know what's in the tanks. About 20-25% of the tanks have actually been measured. Um, The science on what happens to the radioactivity when it's discharged into the marine environment, has been fundamentally flawed. Uh, They've ignored what's already in the environment from the disaster and what still continues to come into the Pacific Ocean every year from the mountains and forests by the rivers and into the estuaries. So it's not just Greenpeace. Only in the last couple of months, over 100 marine laboratories in the United States, which includes the most prestigious oceanographic institutes in the world, at Scripps and it's uh, the NOAA, as well as um, the Woods Hole Institution. Those scientists have basically said the Japanese government has not done the science on this and they are opposed to the discharges as a result. So there's huge uncertainties about what's actually going to happen. And the situation in, you know, in 2023, when the world's oceans are facing such catastrophic threats from climate change, over resource extraction, fisheries. We're talking about a government making a deliberate decision to dump and discharge nuclear waste into the marine environment. It's really quite outrageous.
4: So is there a better credible
6: alternative? Well, the myth that Japanese government has communicated to the people of Japan and internationally is that there is no alternative. They're running out of storage space and something has to be done. Uh, That, of course, is not the reality. Uh, And for years, we've presented evidence to the Japanese government, which they've ignored, which is that the site itself, uh, Fukushima Daiichi, has storage space. The area around the plant uh, is a nuclear disaster zone in the two communities of Okuma and Futaba. They have storage site for 16 million tons of contaminated soil, which they've been trucking in to the site over the last five, six years. So this is a complete nonsense that they don't have storage capacity. What it's actually about is trying to communicate that they've solved one of the problems from Fukushima, the nuclear disaster, and that they're making progress. Uh, in actual fact, they really haven't solved anything at the Fukushima Daiichi disaster, and it's and it's ongoing.
4: The Pacific Islands Forum have taken a really strong stance against this, and you mentioned, uh, you know, ha- ha- all the other sort of groups and layers which have said that this isn't a good idea. What position are the Pacific Islands from coming from?
6: Well, of course, you will know, and your your listeners will know far better than I the history of nuclear testing in the Pacific, from the United Kingdom, the United States, from France, but also nuclear transports, uh, including to Japan, uh, and also as well as nuclear waste dumping. That plans were from the 1940s that the United States was dumping nuclear waste in the Pacific as early as late as the late 90s. Uh, Russia was hoping to dump nuclear waste, which the Japanese government opposed. So uh, the Pacific Island nations are coming from uh, a perspective of we are already victims of the nuclear age. We're still dealing with those legacies, for example, in the Marshall Islands, uh, where the, the contamination remains. Um, and so they're basically saying, how is it that having suffered 70 years from the nuclear industry, from nuclear weapons, we're now faced with yet another another decision. And the, the, the really significant part of this is the Japanese government doesn't have to do this. The water is currently stored in tanks. Yes, there are risks. Japan suffers a lots of earthquakes, but they can make them as robust as possible. There's no, no risk in any of this because this is about a nuclear disaster that is not contained. But the Pacific Islands are deeply, deeply concerned. They're looking at it from the perspective of science, They've appointed the scientific panel that's done an excellent job. Uh, they're also looking at point of view from legality. The, the, the legal issues around this are very clear. Japan is obligated to, to comply with international maritime law, including the UN Convention for Law of the Sea. They're not doing that. They're also looking at it from uh, an economic and environmental perspective. This is their ocean. This is the island's ocean. The Pacific nations depend on the marine environment. Some of the most impoverished nations in the Asia Pacific region and yet currently their views are being ignored by the Japanese government. Mm.
4: So you just mentioned the law and uh, listeners are asking it's an obvious question can an international court step in what can
6: happen to to actually halt
4: the plan. Mm.
6: Well there's there's several legal routes one is domestic in Japan uh, the many many lawyers that I've worked with over the decades in Japan that have filed lawsuits against the industry, against the government, and many of those lawsuits have actually been successful, although also many of them fail. There's a legal angle in Japan. Uh, An administrative lawsuit would probably be the most logical to basically put an injunction on these operations. Uh, At an international level, the the principal legal route would be, as I mentioned earlier, the UN Convention for the Law of the Sea, Various articles of that convention, which Japan is is, an obligate, is obligated to comply with, requires, for example, a comprehensive environmental impact assessment. Japan has not done that. It requires consultation. If there is a risk of so-called transboundary pollution, in other words, where radioactive materials move from one country's jurisdiction into international waters and potentially other countries' jurisdictional waters, Uh, Japan is absolutely required to assess and avoid that pollution where possible. And that's exactly what Japan could do if it chose to do so. In other words, the legal basis for for challenging Japan, we believe, is very strong.
1: That was Sean Burney, Senior Nuclear Specialist at Greenpeace East Asia, speaking there to the ABC's Patricia (laughs) Cavellis. Listening to Pacific Beat, and it's that time where we find out what's making news around the Pacific region. And just before this, uh, we heard the song Rocky, This Is My Time, out of Papua New Guinea. It was one of our finalists for Pacific Break. But to take us all through the news, We have Nick Fogarty with us. Good morning, Nick.
0: Morning, Priyanka. Um,
1: Now, let's head to the story which we covered actually yesterday with Kyle Evans on NewsRap where um, where it was found that um, a number of Ni Vanuatu seasonal workers um, had been living in a property in Tasmania, Newmania. They were evacuated from that property due to safety concerns. There's been an update to that. What is it?
0: Uh, yeah, as you mentioned, uh, we heard that 43 people were evacuated from this property in Shearwater mm-hmm. in, in Tasmania after the local Latrobe Council issued an emergency order to vacate that property. Uh, they alleged there was significant and obvious risk to the health and safety of dozens of seasonal workers living there, and they were then offered alternative accommodation. Um, so as, as it did yesterday, ABC News is reporting that the owner of the house has now spoken out and that's Simon Baldock. He's the director of Insight Taz Proprietary Limited, which owns the house, uh, and he's stringently denied the council's claim that it was appropriate for an emergency order to be issued. Uh, he says, quote, We assert that the council has, once again, without any warning or dialogue, jumped the gun and shot first, and with no intention of even asking questions of us. Uh, he says the house was built to council's standards, and that the seasonal workers were all known to each other. They travelled to Tasmania together and they chose to live with each other. Uh, But it should also be noted that the same house was uh, evacuated for similar reasons in 2020. So uh, some history there.
1: Yes, very interesting. Do we know what the next steps are?
0: Well, Mr Baldock's company has appealed the evacuation order to Tasmania's Civil and Administrative Appeals Tribunal, Uh, For their part, the Latrobe Council has actually taken aim at the Pacific Labor Mobility Scheme, saying those administering the scheme should ensure all accommodation provided meets council and building code standards uh, and make sure it's compliant and fit for purpose. Uh, Mm. So we'll see what happens there in uh, the Tassie civil administrative tribunal.
1: Yes, yes. Very interesting stuff. I mean, this is one case, and and I guess twice this house has been marked um, Mm. for this reason. Uh, But there have been concerns, as I was saying yesterday, more widely about the accommodation standards for seasonal workers um, around the country, really. So interesting to see this happen here. But also to have both sides, I guess, of the situation. Things are always not not what they seem at first glance. (laughs) Um, Now let's Head um, to New York, well, where the United Nations conference happening, where there's a Na- United Nations conference happening on ocean biodiversity, and Fiji has given a pointed warning to nations there. What's happened?
0: Yeah, so it's the fifth session of the Intergovernmental Conference on Biodiversity Beyond National Jurisdictions, uh, which is running until March third. Fiji's UN representative is Ambassador Satyendra Prasad. And Radio New Zealand's reporting that he said the stakes could not be higher for islands in the Pacific and that nations must reach a binding treaty that is of far-reaching importance to Pacific mm-hmm. islands. Uh, so that he's saying that must happen during this conference. Um, we know the Pacific Ocean spans over 40 million square miles, um, but essentially the way things stand now, only a small part of that is protected through the UN Convention law of the sea, uh, and that's the most comprehensive mechanism to guide the conservation and use of the oceans. So what Ambassador Prasad has has pointed out is that that UN convention provides protection for the seas that are just 200 miles beyond Fiji's and other countries' last land, but that the waters beyond them aren't protected. Um, He says the BBNJ is the treaty which will provide some protection as well as provide the guidelines for how countries should deal with commerce, science, and in commercial activities on the high seas. So something that will go wider than just these territorial protections. Palau's UN representative, Ambassador Ilana Said has also weighed in. Uh, She says there can't really be a mechanism for ocean governance that's just territorial. Uh, She's made the analogy that it's like having a nice house in a bad neighbourhood, and the proper proper governance of the whole ocean is needed.
1: Mm, Yes, very interesting. I I wonder what particular issues they're um, speaking about. I mean, there are concerns around illegal fishing, for instance, Mm. in in, um, areas particularly outside that um, 200 um, miles, you know, land boundary, Mm. that that there are concerns. And and I believe in our previous story when we were hearing about uh, the Fukushima-treated wastewater dumping in the Pacific, uh, the the person there also mentioned the UN convention and and what what that might mean for the yeah. legality around that dumping.
0: Who, who owns what in the ocean is always a tricky issue.
1: Exactly, exactly. So be very interesting to see what comes out of that um those negotiations there. Um but let's stay with that environmental theme Nick because there's some good news for Australian animal species that were on the brink of extinction.
0: There is. The Age is reporting research from the Journal of Biological Conservation claiming that 29 Australian animals have been pulled back from the brink of extinction to the extent that they no longer meet the criteria for being listed as threatened. Uh, Some of those species include the well-known humpback whale, murray cod and the cassowary, and lesser-known species including the burrowing betong and the Flinders rangers worm lizard. It's less than 10% of Australia's threatened wildlife but the lead authors say they're encouraged by the research um, with the results coming because of things like the banning of commercial harvesting of humpbacks and uh, decades of fishing regulation, captive breeding and translocation for the Murray cods. Um, Unfortunately, it's not all sunshine and rainbows as at Mm -hmm. least five animal species listed as threatened to become extinct after they were listed, um, and that includes the Christmas Island pipistrel. Which is a small insectivorous bat, uh, and the small bramble k melamese, which is a native rat.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, it is. I guess. Yeah. Good and bad news for these other um, animals. I'm sorry to say, I don't know many of them. The cassowary did um, mm. ring a bell, and humpback whale, of course. I, I, I just find it so heartening to know that our actions, and particularly the researchers' actions, are actually having an impact and saving some of these species. So um, I guess that's yeah good, good news and, and heartful, heart, heartening news for, for all of us. Uh, Hopefully okay. there's more of it. Yes, exactly. Hopefully we can pre- com- get that, what did you say, insectivorous bat um, yep. off Peter's the trail. Yes, exactly. Um, Nick, thank you for the stories. No problem. And that was Nick Fogarty bringing us the latest from around the Pacific. Join
5: me, Hilda Wayne for Sisters Let's Talk. I'll be interviewing incredible guests and discussing issues that are in the hearts and minds of Pacific women. If women have their specific needs. If a woman is menstruating and she's out in the farm, there should be sanitary packs or sanitary dignity packs we call it that should be made available in the farms. So join me for Sisters Let's Talk. Witness Days at 3.30pm PNG time on ABC Radio Australia.
1: You are listening to ABC Radio Australia. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. You're listening to Pacific Beat. Now to Vanuatu, where in politics few things are certain. Comrades can be adversaries, and they then come to embrace one another again. And that appears to be what's happening with with the current Prime Minister Ishmael Kalsikow, and former PM Charlotte Salwai, Once members of the same party, Mr. Salway lost his seat in Parliament after being convicted for perjury due to a police complaint laid by Mr. Kalsakow. Now, though, the pair have reconciled at a traditional ceremony in what the Prime Minister hopes will lead to the reunification of his party and the strengthening of his government. Liam Fox with this report.
7: By all accounts, the reconciliation on Pentecost Island this week was a colourful affair. According to the Daily Post, Prime Minister Ishmael Kausakau presented pigs, yams, carver and cash to Charlo Salwai and the people of Pentecost. His aim, he says, was to say sorry.
2: My uh, intention was to uh, appease uh, the chiefs and the people of Pentecost who were deprived of uh, representation. Uh, so, uh, I, I did that as a gesture of goodwill.
7: Sorry, because it was a complaint that Mr Kalsakau filed with police that ultimately led to Mr Salwai being convicted of perjury in 2020. He was handed a suspended sentence but still lost his seat in Parliament, which he has since regained. Mr Kalsakau says his other aim was to reunify and strengthen his union of moderate parties of which Mr Salwai used to be a member.
2: He uh, used to belong to uh, the party I am president uh, of at the moment, the Union of Moderate Parties, and they had a fallout with uh, the former president of the UMP and um, they were asked from the party. Once I got elected as president, my first task that was set by Congress was to approach uh, him and other leaders to see whether it was possible that they could return to uh, Union of Modern Parties.
7: Tess newton Kane from Griffith University's Pacific Hub says the reconciliation is a significant development.
8: It's a really strong demonstration of the continuing importance of cultural protocol and cultural processes at the highest level of politics in Vanuatu. And I think what's important or interesting for people to understand is that in the Vanuatu context, This apology and reconciliation has to come first before there can be any kind of horse trading or politicking around who's joining government, that they get a ministry and all of those sorts of things.
7: Behind the custom, though, cold, hard numbers politics is still at play, she says.
8: If we assume that Salwai does take the RMC into government... (laughs) That obviously leaves the opposition weakened in terms of numbers. That does give Kalsakau a bit more of a buffer and a comfort against a potential motion of no confidence, which, you know, is, is a very well used and only to be expected aspect of politics in Vanuatu.
7: Mr Salwai is yet to indicate whether he'll take himself and his fellow MPs to the government benches. Mr Kalsakau, though, is hopeful.
2: It's a step-by-step process, isn't it? I mean, the first thing is to reconcile, to, to say sorry, and uh, and then to uh, provide them with a gesture, an open gesture for them to consider. They accepted the custom, and um, we uh, discussed the possibility of uh, a pathway so that uh, we could continue at the present time the way we were, but we would walk to a work towards uh, a, a possible uh, reunification.
1: That was Vanuatu's Prime Minister Ishmael Kalsakau. ending that report from Liam Fox.
7: You're listening to Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia.
1: You are listening to Pacific Beat on this Thursday morning. I'm Priyanka Srinivasan. Papua New Guinea has some of the world's highest rates of domestic violence, but new analysis of national data paints a picture of the issue that contradicts many assumptions people hold – Kingtau Mambon is a master's student of international development economics at the Australian National University. He told reporter Marion Farr that a personal experience with the issue of gender-based violence in PNG prompted him to delve into the data.
3: We normally think that having more education it's kind of a protective factor and it increases women status basically and reduces their exposure to spousal violence but the data shows that increasing education level, for instance, having higher education, women with higher education have experienced more possible violence than women without education. In this case, 60% of the respondents with higher education experience violence and only 42% for women without education. And about the wealth quantile, yeah, we normally think uh, peace and comfort comes with having more wealth. But it seems like it uh, it's a bit different.
9: Mm. And so wealth quantile, does that refer to the income of the woman's household or the woman's personal income?
3: When they conduct the survey, they kind of take a proxy of wealth, like for each household. For instance, how many TVs they have in, in their house or... Do they have cars?
9: And so what what did the results show in terms of the correlation between gender-based violence or spousal violence and um, wealth?
3: It increases spousal violence, prevalence of spousal violence. It increases with the wealth quantile. Like higher the wealth quantile you go, higher the spousal violence has been reported.
9: And then another thing you looked at was rural versus urban statistics. What, what was the data showing there?
3: Yes, so data shows that um, 47% of women in rural areas experience spousal violence compared to 56% in the urban centres, which is a bit contradicts what the common perception is that rural women experience more violence than urban uh, centres women.
9: Right. And so whereabouts was this data collected? Where is this data coming from?
3: So this data coming from all over the country, all the provinces.
9: And who collected the data?
3: Uh, It's from the National Statistical Office of Rowan Guinea. And they are the official uh, body responsible to collect such data.
9: And um, when was the data collected?
3: It was collected between 2016 and 2018. Mm.
9: And how reliable do you think this data is? Because I guess it um some of these findings contradict what some service providers say from what they observe on the ground. And so I'm just interested in how reliable you think this um this is.
3: I think this data has been collected by the National Statistical Office of Pavonini by experts. So I think this data is Reliable and it is not only collected by the power ingredients themselves. I think the program, this uh, data is collected through the support of other international organizations, UNICEF and PNG Australian Partnership. So I think the data is reliable.
9: Do you think there could be other things that skew the results? For example, that women with uh, lower levels of education and lower levels of wealth might be less likely to report um, gender-based violence because they feel ashamed or because they don't recognise it as gender-based violence or perhaps they didn't understand the surveys. Do you think there could be anything going on there that's impacting the data?
3: Yes. So for that case, I removed the emotional violence from the study. So I think normally educated women might be more reactive to to violence. So I remove uh, emotional violence, but the data still, uh, the trend still holds. So I report only on the physical and sexual violence, which is kind of to put the educated women and uneducated women on, on par, still the trends hold. And-
9: so you mentioned that some of these results are quite surprising and indeed would suggest uh, different trends to what, what you might see in other countries in terms of the correlation between wealth and education and women's experiences or likelihood of experiencing a spousal or gender-based violence. Um, w- what do you make of these results? Like why do you think that this might be the case? Yes, so for, for the
3: education, I did wrote a sentence about that. It's about uh, the traditional or paternal society that we have in PNG. We're maintaining the day of the dominance in, in the household. But as women get more education, it kind of increases women's status and men might feel kind of threatened the status, this traditional dominant status. Like to maintain that status quo, they might try to I use violence.
9: Hmm. What about that finding surrounding that linking um, households with a higher sort of degree of wealth and likelihood of, of of gender-based violence or spousal violence? do you have any suggestions why that might be the case?:
3: Yes, one thing is one one of my views is that when men have in PNZ, where households have a lot of wealth, it's normally the man who controls the wealth. So kind of having the power in their hands, like they own a lot of wealth and women might be financially uh, dependent on the men. So it kind of makes the men think that he can do anything to the wife and the wife will do nothing. Mm. So it kind of increases the woman's uh, exposure to violence with men increasing power with accumulating wealth.
9: Mm. And I guess... Given these trends, what do you think we can learn from this and what do you think, how do you think this information can be used in a practical sense to address the very serious issue of gender-based violence in PNG?
3: Yes, so the idea is not to discourage women of having education but to encourage men to realise uh, how important women can contribute to the society and yeah, make them, you know, this uh, strong kind of mentality to over time, maybe they can accept, accept that men and women are equal.
9: Mm. Just one final question. Um, what, what got you interested in this research?
3: I stayed in Port Moseley before coming to studies, and I'm living in um, next to a police barracks, and every time, I every fortnight, I used to hear, you know, the so-called law enforcers beating their wives. And it kind of hits me and always makes me try to think what are some of the ways of so thinking about the issue that even a person that is, they took oath to protect the society is doing something that is totally different from his oath. Yeah, so apart from my like economic studies, I'm uh, interested to look into these social issues as well.
1: That was ANU Master's student King Tao Amambon speaking there with Marion Farr. And just before we go, I wanted to update you on the hostage crisis in Papua New Guinea. One of the Papua New Guinean women being held hostage in the country's highlands has been freed, but the Australian professor remains captive. That was news that broke during the night. If you want to hear more about that, you can head to the ABC Pacific website for a digital update from our correspondent. We'll
7: have a sports show tomorrow. Until then, have a lovely day.